0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. There was a time when we looked on Saudi Arabia as simply the gas station to the world, certainly to the U.S. At the time, the nation generated fear and a lack of understanding. Its tribal structure, our lack of knowledge about its history, and the repeated failures of U.S. policy in the Middle East all placed the kingdom beyond our comprehension. Its efforts today to modernize both its culture and its economy, and the U.S.'s own confidence about oil independence, as well as other dramatic geopolitical shifts, have caused us to reassess Saudi's role in the world. At the same time, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and other seeming human rights abuses in the nation have not helped. In short, Saudi Arabia still remains a great enigma. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, David Rundell. David studied Arabic at Oxford and served as an American diplomat for 30 years in Washington, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, and the United Arab Emirates. He is widely regarded as one of America's leading experts on Saudi Arabia. His assignments in Saudi Arabia included chief of mission, charge d'affaires, Affairs, deputy chief of mission, political counselor, economic counselor, and commercial attaché. Currently, he's a partner in Arabia Analytica, and the author of Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. David Rundell, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here. Well,
0: it's great to have you here. Why is it that Saudi Arabia is such a mystery to us? It has been a key part of of global activity for a long time, as, as we'll talk about. It's certainly changing now, but it has played a significant role for many, many, many years, and yet it still remains a great enigma. I think there are
1: several reasons for that. The first is that it is
0: an extremely
1: unusual place. It's an odd place, a weird place. Um, The economy and the political system are very foreign to what most countries in the world are. So it's difficult to understand. I'll be very quick and tell you that when I was the political counselor, I used to tell my junior officers, throw away your political science book because it's not going to help you here in Saudi Arabia. What you need to do is get a book on uh, Tudor England and learn how Henry VIII ran his country because this is an absolute monarchy. This is the last strategically important absolute monarchy on the world in the world, and so it fundamentally politically doesn't operate like most countries. Likewise, um, its economy is um, very unusual. Uh, the standard of living that the people enjoy is not directly connected to their own productivity. Most countries, the people's productivity pretty much determines their standard of living, but the Saudis have oil and that gives them uh, an opportunity, a lucky break, if you will. Um, it also changes their their way their economy functions. And I'll just be very quick there, for example, um, they don't really have a monetary policy. Their their, dola- their currency is pegged to our dollar, so their interest rates are set by our Federal Reserve. Or they're, they don't, ha- they up until very recently, they had no taxes. So it's hard to have a um, fiscal policy if you don't have taxes. So the first answer is that they are just a different place and require some digging to understand. The second reason why they're poorly understood is their own, if, if you will, their own fault. I mean, they have been a very closed society. Uh, they have been a xenophobic society. They don't, up until very recently, this is this is one of the things which is changing rapidly and dramatically, but up until quite recently, it was very difficult to go to Saudi Arabia. There were no tourist visas. You couldn't get a tourist visa. Uh, it was hard to get a business visa. Uh, they didn't make it easy for you to go there, and they really didn't make it, they made it pretty clear that they'd be happy when you left. So, um, that, those are the really the two main reasons. One, it was difficult to access, and two, it was very diff- different to
0: begin with. Because of oil, because it was so essential for so long in in this country, there was always a certain amount of resentment towards Saudi Arabia. Talk about that.
1: Well, I think that's true. I think that um, the United States um, felt very vulnerable after the 1973 um, oil embargo, and we That left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. I mean, definitely. I think if you look at it historically, the King Faisal tried to moderate the Arab position at that time. He really didn't want to break relations with the United States, but he was under tremendous pressure from a lot of other Arab countries and from his own people to do something to show that he was supporting the Arab cause. and that left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. I would say this, though, that uh, Secretary of State Kissinger and the Secretary of the Treasury uh, Simon quickly recovered from that. And instead of trying to isolate Saudi Arabia, they actually very wisely said, OK, we don't want this to happen again, so we are going to leak the Saudi economy even closer to our own so that if something really damages our economy, it's going to damage them too. And that really did... Um, have an effect. I think that since 73, you've ne- you haven't really seen, the Saudis have never used their oil weapon uh, politically for a, for a political cause. They use it economically, but they've never um, never done that again. And that's you know 50 years ago. So it's been a long time since they did that. Um, and one of the reasons, as I say, is that they now understand that their own prosperity is very closely tied to the rest of the world. So that if the whole world goes into recession because oil prices get too high, the demand for their oil will go down. And so they they don't want that to happen. So they're careful about that now.
0: In the current framework where there's a sense of, even though it's not truly independence, but a sense of energy independence on the part of the U.S., how has that impacted the relationship with Saudi Arabia?
1: I think that the average American, again, thinks that... um, our dependence on them is less now than it was, and that's true. But our dependence on them was really never that great, to be honest. Even in 1973, we're in something like four percent of our imports were coming from Saudi Arabia. So it, we've never. Europe and and Asia are dependent on them, uh, heavily dependent on them, uh, particularly Asia. Uh, we are less so. Um, we are now, as you mentioned, essentially an oil exporter. We at Sometimes we are the largest producer in the world. Um, I Just to touch briefly on why the Saudis remain important in the oil market is really two reasons. The first one's quick, and that is that while we don't import Saudi oil, a lot of other people do, and the oil price is a global price by and large adjusted for transportation, but basically it's traded at a global price. And so if the price goes up for other people, it will go up for us unless we put a ban on importing oil or exporting oil. So as long as we have free trade, we'll be affected by the price. Um, But more importantly, what makes Saudi Arabia um, the Federal Reserve of Energy is their surplus capacity. I think that's, if the people listening today come away with one thought, that would be the idea that I would like to leave with them is that Saudi Arabia produces a lot of oil. It produces very inexpensive oil, somewhere around $4 a barrel. It costs them to produce it. Um, But what makes them, but other people produce oil and to produce it cheaply, what makes them different is that they drill a lot of oil wells and then they just shut them in and keep them for a rainy day. So usually they have about 2 million barrels a day um, of surplus capacity. And they do use that to keep the market stable. I mean, if there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico and all the wells are shut in, or if there's a strike in Venezuela, or quite frankly, if, there is, um, if the United States decides we want to put sanctions on somebody and we take Iranian oil off the market, well, who's going to make that up? Nobody else has this really, and most of the time, nobody else has a surplus capacity. So the Saudis can do that. They did that when Iraq invaded Kuwait and kept the price from going through the roof. So anyway, that's that's what makes them important, their, their ability to be the, as I say, the sort of central bank of energy.
0: Talk a little bit about their relationship with China at present and how it's evolved in the past several years. Well, um,
1: it's grown uh dramatically china is their biggest trading partner now for many years it was the united states uh, now china is the biggest cu- it's their biggest customer for oil and it's their biggest trading partner uh, in terms of things they import as well so they have a very large and robust um and that's that's recent that's you know happened within the last 10 years that 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 has happened it's been going on maybe since yeah really in a big way for the last 10 years uh they don't really they have us they have an odd military relationship with China uh they did buy strategic uh, ballistic missiles from China back in the 90s uh when they were afraid of the Iraqis and the Iranians the Iranians were in the, if you may remember there was a war between Iraq and Iran and the, Iran was firing missiles at Baghdad and the Saudis wanted something to defend themselves with or a, a deterrent, so. We wouldn't sell them missiles, so they bought them from the Chinese. But other than that, they haven't really they haven't really developed a uh, complicated. M- most of their military equipment still from the United States. I would say though that the um, Chinese have do play a more interesting role in their security. And you probably remember that a f- few months ago, um, the they claimed it was the Houthis, but I think most people believe it was really the Iranians who fired uh, missiles or actually drones at um, one of the Saudi oil facilities and took half of Saudi Arabia's oil production offline for several weeks. The United States uh, made it clear to the Iranians that we didn't want that to happen again. And that if, we, it, if it did happen again, there would probably be a more forceful response. We sent some Patriot missiles there to defend Abqaiq, the facility. But what the Chinese did was actually even more interesting. They went to see the Iranians and they said, you know, we're the only people that are buying your oil now. We're the people that are helping you refund your, uh, your refixing up your refineries. You know, we're the people who still trade with you and we don't appreciate your taking off, uh, half the Saudi production when we're their biggest customer. So we'd appreciate it if you don't do that again. And I think that the Chinese had just as much a role in, in playing the in making sure that that has not happened again as we did.
0: To what extent has the relationship with China impacted Saudi's relationship with the U.S.?
1: I don't think it's impacted it um, negatively or positively. I think you know we. I think Saudi Arabia um, for a long time they had one main friend, and that was the United States. The country is, and that was largely because we were the ones that built their oil industry for them. And they were, they were very close, and they're still very closely tied to the United States in terms of um, where their, their elite is educated, and not even their elite, their middle class. Um, so that has not really been affected by the fact that they now have more friends than just one. Um, they have had relations with the Russians now as well. They have relations with the Chinese and they're a mature country. And I think you expect them to have relations with more than, than just one country, which is, as I say, how it was for a long time, but that was somewhat unnatural. Um, just to give you an idea how close that relationship is, they have something called the modulus, Shore, which is a, um, it's more like a house of lords than a parliament. The members are appointed, but they do have um, some role in the legislative process. And in that um, body, Half of the people there have graduate degrees from American universities. That's an amazing fact. I mean, I can't imagine there's another parliament anywhere in the world other than the United States where half the members have um, American educations. And if you look at the Saudi cabinet, something like 65% of them have American education. And if you look at the board of Aramco, uh, all of them have American education uh, mostly in graduate level. So, um, there's a very close relationship. I just say one more thing up for, for up until very recently, they just changed it now, but up until very recently, Saudi Arabia was the only place outside North America where they still had 120, um, Volt uh, electricity. Everybody else uses 220, as you probably know. But the Saudis got their start with us, and they followed us. But now they want to be like the rest of the Europeans, since that's what most of the area is. So they're switching. But for a long time, that was uh, um, just another example of uh, the relationship, how close it really was, and still, and still is, by and large.
0: There has been this effort that has been going on for a number of years now. Really, uh, Mohammed bin Salman's effort to to move the Saudi economy away from being totally dependent on oil. Talk a little bit about that effort and how it's been proceeding.
1: Well, uh, he has something called Vision 2030. It has social, economic, uh, and a little bit of political um change in it. The, the social changes are profound. I mean, they're very significant. I think you all know about that, the changes in the women driving the changes in the jobs women can have the all, many many of the restrictions on women the restrictions on movie theaters the restrictions on many things have have liberalized significantly the economy is harder okay you um you can che- you can write a law that says women can drive and that fi- and that fixes that problem the economy had three real problems one they have a budget deficit that was getting worse they had um, they are overdependent on oil and they had an unemployment rate which was high and they needed to create jobs they have made some progress in all of those things um, they have for example they have started imposing taxes on people which they had never done before uh, they have started sending home the foreign workers and make and making those jobs available to saudis um, They have begun to privatize some parts of the state-owned industries, what most people know about Aramco, but there are a lot of other things that the government owns that they were selling. Um, One of the more interesting parts of the economic transformation has been the crackdown on corruption. Uh, What we would call corruption has existed uh, really widely in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it wasn't really considered corruption, or at least um, people didn't get thrown in jail for it. King Salman was always against that, but when he was only governor of Riyadh, he couldn't really do much. Um, He's come down very hard on that and and made it very clear that he sees corruption as a roadblock to economic development. So he's arrested a lot of people, he's fined a lot of people, and more to the point, he's made it uh, clear that it's socially unacceptable. So while people used to know that you were a crook, but they still invite you to their parties, uh, now maybe they won't. So that's, that's changed. So those things are, have really happened, um, and it's not a mirage. Uh, on the other hand, it's extremely difficult to achieve some of the things they want to do. The unemployment and, and COVID and the low oil price has not helped. So they uh, have made slow progress. They were making better progress before COVID, but now with the COVID and the, and the corresponding collapse in oil prices, their efforts to diversify the economy have slowed down. Their unemployment rate has actually gone up. Uh, the budget deficit is not gone away. It's, it's better than it was a couple of years ago, but it's they were hoping that they would get it to zero. That didn't happen. So it's a mixed bag. I would say that they're, they have a plan. Uh, Vision 2030 was a well thought out plan um, done by some of the best uh, consultants in the world, really. Uh, And they have a new structure to try and implement that plan in their government, which they changed a number of things in how their government works. So they're trying, but they have quite a ways to go on the economic front.
0: The cultural changes that you talked about, particularly with respect to women, but overall, how embedded are they? Have they taken root to the extent that they're permanent, do you think? Or could they change on a dime? That's a good
1: question. I think they're permanent um because they reflect a generational change uh it's it's the same way really with the abraham accord and the um the recognition by the uae of um of israel and the the fact that that was largely not wasn't criticized by the saudis at all um these are generational events um and to some extent, you know, people give a lot of credit to Mohammed bin Salman for driving these changes. And he is a bulldozer and he does it is a champion of these changes. But to some extent, they were going to happen anyways, because there's a, there's there is a generational shift. Young people, half the people in Saudi Arabia are under 30 years old. Uh, they watch YouTube. They do WhatsApp. Uh, they don't want to live an isolated life uh like their parents did and um they want to be part of the global economy and in fact one of the i mean one of the reasons that the king pushed this vision 2030 and is that he knew he saw and so did i everyone did smart young saudis were leaving educated saudis were saying i'm out of here i'm going to dubai i'm going to new york Uh, i'm going to go to san francisco somewhere that i can you know be freer and have a more interesting life and get a good job. And so they, they want, and they did stop that. I have to say, I know at least three people, uh, whose kids, whose children came back because they said, look, things are really happening in Saudi Arabia. Things are moving things, which you couldn't really have imagined men and women who aren't married sitting in restaurants, which was illegal. Literally it was illegal. You'd get arrested uh music in restaurants movie theaters i mean there used to be no music now they got people playing music in the airports these are these are shocking things that if not shocking but i mean they're startling if you if you knew saudi arabia um just the idea that women can check into a hotel now without their guardian i remember the first time i saw that i was i was shocked i said wow this is a lady is checking into the hotel by herself how amazing i mean not amazing in america but it was amazing in saudi arabia So, um, yeah, these changes are significant and I don't think they'll be rolled back unless there's some kind of a revolution. Okay, there are maybe 20 percent of the people. I would I would give you numbers like this. Seventy percent of the people are more or less behind the king and what he's doing. And Mohammed bin Salman, both economically and socially, there are 20 percent who think that things have gone too fast. Who who actually would like things to slow down or even reverse, and then there's another 10% who thinks, who think things haven't gone far, far enough, fast enough. They, they think there should be an election for the king tomorrow, or we should have a nightclub or whatever a casino, or you know they 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 are pushing for even even more um, dramatic change. Uh, so those 30% are not happy. Uh, I don't think that the 20% who are um, going, who who think things went too fast, um, are at this point, um, going to create a revolution, partly because a lot of them got put in jail, quite frankly. Uh, so that's true. They did put, they did put a number of those people in prison.
0: What is the government most fearful of? What could upset the apple cart the most?
1: I think there are probably three things that could upset the apple cart, um, Continued low oil prices and economic hardship. Uh, Right now, the country still has a lot of reserves. It still has a lot of borrowing capacity. It's interesting to note that most of the Gulf states were downgraded by the rating agencies. Saudi Arabia was not. uh, And that's largely because they increased taxes. And so they are remaining more solvent than some of the other countries. but if that continued for a long time, that would low oil prices is a problem. Um, as I said, a religious backlash is potentially a problem. I don't see it right now, but it's it's there. There are people who would like it to happen. I mean, they're under control at the moment, but they exist, and there are, if you will, would-be Khomeini's, uh in Saudi Arabia, and they, they exist. So, and they have followings. Uh, and, and they would roll all of this back, for sure. And then the third thing I would say is um, if something were to happen to the crown prince. And that's an interesting issue because one of the strengths of the El Saud dynasty has been their ability to manage succession, their ability to move from one king to another, to another peacefully uh, and quickly. And that worked amongst the sons of the old king, who he had 34 sons, and for the last 60 years, they've just been handing it between one brother to another, which worked. Um, people say that the king ended that system. He didn't really end the system. The system, end, the system ended itself because there's they ran out of brothers. So now they're going to have to jump to a grandson. And... There were 34 sons. There are over 500 grandsons. Every one of them thinks he should be the next king. And so this was a real potential um, disaster waiting to happen, really. It was a real game of thrones that could have destabilized the kingdom. The king picked the person he thought would be best, uh, whether you think he's a good guy or a bad guy, that's the person he picked. And he engineered it so that that fellow is will be the next king when the king dies, if he's still around. But what we have is what you call in the investment world, key man risk. Usually there's a number three guy. There's a number, there's a king, a number two and a number three. There is no number three now. They haven't picked a number three. So if something happened to Mohammed bin Salman, that would be destabilizing.
0: Talk about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and certainly the negative publicity, if nothing else, that it brought to Saudi Arabia, given all of these positive changes that are working their way through the system.
1: Well, I think that's the most probably the most important question of the evening. Um, anyone who deals with Saudi Arabia has to wrestle with that um, that question. It The question reflects the. Um, a constant tension in foreign policy—a tension between our values and our interests. Uh, excluding either one is is a, is not a is a recipe for disaster. If we abandon our values, we really have nothing to defend. And if we abandon our interests, we have nothing to defend our values with. So, we need to have a balance. Um, that said. Um, jamal khashoggi's murder was a crime it needs to be punished Uh, it needs to be um, not repeated and that needs to be made abundantly clear and i think the fact that it's not to be repeated has been made abundantly clear Uh, and the punishments have been handed out whether you think they're adequate or not the people did go to jail whether you think everybody who was responsible went to jail or not that i couldn't answer that because i the court wasn't an open thing that's another example of the saudis problem of why people don't understand them because they keep a lot of things secret, um, their bungled cover-up of the, um, you know, that was I should have mentioned that in the when you said why are they poorly understood? They're poorly understood because they have a deaf ear when it comes to uh, public relations. I think, um, so that the United States does have interests uh, in a relationship with Saudi Arabia, not just the stable production of oil, but counterterrorism, regional stability, including the, the security of Israel which the Saudis would like to see that problem resolved and have worked behind the scenes quite hard to try and get that problem. And they're working right now today, actually, to try and get that problem resolved. So we have a lot of interests with them. Um, The king remains popular. The king is trying to reform his country. We should wish him success uh, and not try to ostracize him. But we should also make it very clear that, that what happened shouldn't ever happen again. And I think that's that's the answer. That's the, is. Um, if you ask me, I think they probably, I, I this is speculation, but I don't think they intended to kill him. I think they intended to kidnap him. They do kidnap people. They have done that before. Um, so I think it was a botched kidnapping myself, but I don't know that for a fact. And whether it was or not doesn't really matter. What they did, they did, and they need to make sure they don't ever do it again. And we need to make that clear to them.
0: In order to understand Saudi Arabia today and the changes taking place that that you've been talking about, finally, what is the one thing or a couple of things that we should be watching? What are the key indicators, if you will, that we should be aware of with respect to understanding Saudi Arabia today? The key indicators. Well, um, I'm hopeful we I've we've spoken
1: a a lot about the political and the social changes. And there are things that you can see there, you know, do they balance their budget? Do they take away the last few restrictions on women? Um, You know, these are things you could like, for example, there aren't yet there's still there aren't very many women judges. Okay, they allowed women lawyers, but not many have become judges yet. So would we see those kind of things we can spot easily? But I would the thing that I'm most hopeful for is that they become a more participatory monarchy. They aren't going to become a democracy anytime soon. But right now, they are in a transition point of where they they could become a police state, like every other Arab country. Because as long as there were these brothers uh, who ran the show kind of as a consensus, there was no one person who had complete power. That's changing, and it is potentially becoming a more authoritarian place. So for me, the thing that I look for in Saudi Arabia is signs that they're not going to become a police state, that they're going to evolve uh, as many other monarchies did around the world into a gra- gradually into a more participatory system. And I think there's a hope for that. And I'll be very quick and say, the reason is that they are the only Arab country that was never colonized. They were there traditional form of government in which religion plays a big role was never overthrown by some colonial administrator who then tried to introduce parliaments and legislation and, and legal codes from the West. And then one day left and said, okay, it's up to you. And everywhere that happened, you ended up pretty quickly with a military dictator. Usually he's a president who used to be a general, um, that didn't that didn't happen in Saudi Arabia because they were never colonized. They've still got their organic form of government, which has a king and a religious set of scholars who kind of manage the country together. And I think they have a chance to evolve. So I'm hopeful that that will happen. I, I, I look for signs that that will happen. And there have been some. There were elections for a municipal councils. So let's hope that there's that the parliament, which is now appointed, becomes elected. That would be a good sign.
0: David Rundell, his book is Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.